<laughs> Thanks, Joel. Um, it's going to be about climate science and climate change, but also about energy and the convergence of technologies, which is what the title here says. And uh, I, I'm warning you now, I have about 60 slides, but I'll be done in 45 minutes or less. And um, so to start off with, I wanna give you some perspective here and some science and where uh, the issue is with increasing carbon dioxide emissions. And then we'll get into the convergence of a number of technologies. So first off, um, this is probably the longest range selfie ever taken. <laughs> and here you are, here we all are, this is Earth. And what they did, uh, the handlers of the Cassini spacecraft in Houston, was turn the cameras around from studying Saturn and its rings and its moon to taking a look at Earth. And uh, basically the message here is that, uh, from my perspective anyhow, there's no planet B. We are all alone here. This is planet A, this is what we have to work with, this is where we live, there's no other place that we can move to. So this is what we're talking about, shepherding uh, Earth. Um, this is an iconic photo and it's in many, many textbooks. And this was taken in 1968 and gave the citizens on our planet the first view of an Earth rise. So the Apollo astronauts were going around the moon and as they went over the dark side, or around the dark side of the moon and came forward, all of a sudden Earth began to arise from the limb of the moon. And as you can see there, the moon is gray and lifeless and kind of featureless. And Earth has, of course, got water and clouds and photosynthesis going on in the green areas. So it's just so dynamic and beautiful. So here's the, here's the problem that we have. All of the corporations, all of the fossil fuel companies have been very successful at what they do, which is to find a lot of carbon, oil, gas, coal. And they, right now there's about, uh, the number is not on there, but oh, here it is. About 27 uh, billion ton, 27,000 billion tons of carbon that they found that we're ready to burn and they're still looking for more. But scientists have determined that if we're gonna stay within two degrees centigrade of where we've been for the last 10,000 years, that we can only burn this much carbon, about 565 billion tons. And so we have a, a problem here. We have already found more than we can possibly burn. And even burning this amount is gonna bring us up to two degrees centigrade or about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, not everyone is in agreement that we should even go that high. So these are what you call stranded assets. And Wall Street and financiers are beginning to take this into account in their evaluation of fossil fuel companies. Because theoretically we can't burn it. And yet the value of the corporations is based on that amount. So this is uh, where we are today. Here we are with carbon up here. The last 800,000 years, this is where carbon has been over eight ice ages, never more than about 300 parts per million, generally less. At the height of an ice age, which is when we're at the coldest, the carbon levels are below 200 parts per million. And these are natural cycles of the Earth's orbit around the sun. 
And so when these ice ages occur, the, the uh, uh, orbit is such that we get a little bit more energy into the planet and the ice melts and the carbon dioxide begins to increase as a function of it coming out of the oceans. And uh, so this is our last interglacial here about 10,000 years ago. And normally it would be about here, about 300 parts per million, but here we are today. Far outside anything in our, the planet's experience for several million years. Um, again, calculations have been done suggesting that if we started in 2016, we would have about uh, 30 years to bring the world's economy down to zero in terms of carbon emissions. But we didn't peak in 2016, and we're still growing in 17, and it looks like 18 will still be growing as well. But if we peaked in 2020, then we would only have about uh, 20 years to bring the world's economy down to zero carbon emissions. So it had to be totally renewable. And if we wait until 2025, then you've only got a decade or so to do that massive task of changing the global economy so it doesn't produce carbon dioxide, because we've got to bring it down to zero, according to these calculations, if we want to be within two degrees of the, of the long-term average. So we have work to do. Um, this obviously is our sun. It would take 109 Earths to go across this, just to give you some idea of the size. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of heat and gravity in the sun, and so thermonuclear explosions are taking place continuously. And hydrogen is being burned basically to form helium. It loses a little bit of mass. That mass is the energy that comes out to the sun, which is what we feel. And continuously, right now, the sun is sending us about 23,000 terawatts of energy an enormous amount of power. Now this is over the whole surface of the planet that's lit by the sun. But when you look at the world energy consumption, we're only at 16 terawatts. So it's kind of a no-brainer that there are other ways that we can get our energy without going to fossil fuels and nuclear. Wind is one, and it has capacity to help. But when you look at the solar amount, it's pretty clear that solar is going to play a big role in the, in the near future. So let's talk now about the clean disruption. Um, this gentleman, Tony Siba, has a very nice website. And I really recommend, uh, if you have a chance, to just look up Tony Siba. He's got several YouTube videos, which are excellent. Uh, and it helps sharpen my thinking about the issue of uh, this convergence of technologies. So we're going to talk about five, five areas here, from computer power, photovoltaics, wind turbines, electric vehicles, and storage batteries, and the advances that are occurring in all of those pretty much at the same time, and they're converging onto a reduced carbon dioxide emission future. Now this is from the EPA website. Now the EPA web website has been scrubbed a lot. But there's still some information on it of value. And two of the segments here, electricity generation and transportation, are areas that um, are really ripe 
for change in the very near future. And so a lot of those uh, technologies that I mentioned will impact those, uh, these two segments a lot and have an impact on reducing the CO2 emissions from those two. So let's look at computer power. This is one. And we've probably heard of Moore's Law. And basically it states that every 18 to 24 months thereabouts, computer power doubles. So in the early 70s, there were a couple of thousand transistors as a part of a printed circuit board or a motherboard. It's just one way of measuring technology. But today there's about two and a half billion transistors in that same circuit board. And uh, so the power that has evolved over the last 45 years or so has been fantastic in terms of com uh, computer power. Now, if you were a company in the early 1970s, this is an IBM 360, and you had one of those, you were king. And uh, in order to get into the room, you, you had, had to kind of have a badge and a little thing to get into the room. Uh, so it had a raised floor, all the wires under the floor. It didn't have uh, water cooling uh, or didn't have uh, uh, water sprinkles. It had halons so that you didn't hurt the computers. Uh, and it had all these disks here with data on them or programs. Now each disk was maybe 15 megabytes. So your cell phone, when you take three or four pictures, equals what this had at that time. And if you've got a thousand on your cell phone, which I do, uh, you get some idea of just how much this has changed since this time. And this is a, um, a Dell, just took it off the web, and it has two terabytes of storage, an enormous amount of storage, and it has uh, 32 gigabytes of RAM, and it's all in behind the screen here. And this is not the most powerful computer, it's just an example of where we've gone from a room to a little desktop PC. Now there's another law, it's called Swanson's Law, and it applies to photovoltaics. And basically what it says is that with every doubling of the shipment, the price goes down by 20%. And so you can see in the uh, 19, the data is not there, yeah, 1976, it was about $100 a kilowatt, I'm sorry, $100 a watt for a photovoltaic uh, panel. And now we're down, this is a logarithmic here in order to get it all on one chart. So this is a dollar, $10, So this is about 60 cents now per watt. And that's in 14, it's down probably in the low 50s now, uh, 50 cents per watt. So what happens? So with uh, the price very high as it was in 75, and the price begins to drop to where we are today, there was very, very little usage, except maybe in spacecraft or something like that, when it's so expensive. But as the price began to drop, use and installations began to increase. And so today, as of 15 anyhow, this is how many megawatts of photovoltaics were installed. In the US, you can see the same kind of thing. It starts off very small as the prices were high, and as the prices got less, it began to really build. And this year, in uh, 2017, uh, we, uh, the US installed about eight, um, 
8,000 megawatts of, of uh, photovoltaics. So we would be off the chart up there somewhere. So it's really growing at a very, very rapid rate. This is in the US, but China, China's is growing even more steeply. They started later and their increase per year is just enormous. And why? Why is China doing so much? That's the reason. Um, they know that their air is toxic. They know that it's filthy. They know they're burning enormous amounts of fossil fuels. And about two million or more is the estimate. People die prematurely every year due to air pollution. And so the powers that be have decided that really they need to take action. And they are, and they're doing it big time. And so China is investing enormous amounts of money and people uh, into having renewables and getting rid of, or trying to get rid, and they haven't got rid of it yet, uh, this, this air pollution problem. And if you look at it globally, this is 237 uh, gigawatts. This is a, a, different, a different dimension, uh, 237 gigawatts. It, it gets a little confusing. A gigawatt is 1,000 megawatts. And a gigawatt is about the power from a nuclear reactor or a large coal burning plant. So you can see there's been an enormous cumulative global installation taking place here with photovoltaics. And that's one of the reasons why oil is still only $60 a barrel, in my view. If it wasn't for this, this energy would be coming from some other source, either coal or oil. Typical solar array, um, no holes in the ground here like we would need for coal. Uh, the land can still be used. These are raised off the ground by, by animals. Uh, and that's what's happening in Texas. They're using a lot of these areas here for uh, grazing cattle. Uh, and also architects are getting into the, into the story here. They're incorporating into the glass panels of buildings photovoltaic cells. So you can generate electricity and look out through the window at the same time. Okay, wind turbines. This shows the unsubsidized cost of renewables. And you'll notice that wind and utility-scale solar are cheaper than anything else on this table. And that includes nuclear, which is out here. It includes uh, biomass, which are wood chips or pellets and obviously coal. And um, so this is current, current data, and it, it's, it shows you that we're right on the edge now. There's very few coal burning plants. As far as I know, there might not be any being built in the United States right now. Ones that are being built are these gas combined cycles from natural gas, from molar fracking. But there's no more coal burning plants being built, to my knowledge. And nuclear building times are long. They're, they're probably 15 years from inception of the concept to financing to getting it online. <coughs> this is just one example here. Uh, actually, two companies, but an example of, of installations ongoing now in the United States. These are two Midwest utility companies. And this wind catcher program that AES just uh, uh, announced a few months ago, they're going to have uh, 2,000 megawatts or 
1.2 gigawatts of uh, wind power by 2020. That's only two and a half years away from now. So not only can you uh, decide that you need it, but you can build it and do it fairly quickly. We don't have to pay attention to these uh, quarterly bars down here, but if we just look at the bar chart here, this is cumulative capacity in the United States. And you can see where about four or five years ago, Congress could not get together and decide about subsidies for wind and the purchase power agreements. And so people don't want to take a chance if they don't know what the, what the rules are of the game. But once Congress decided that they would continue to do what they were doing, it took off again. And so this is about 85,000 megawatts or 85 gigawatts. So it's an enormous amount of power that's being built in the United States today for wind turbines. This is just an example of one in China. China in the Northwest has a very windy region in Outer Mongolia and some of the other provinces up there. And uh, a lot of power is being generated up there. Unfortunately, their pipeline for the electrons isn't keeping up to date and they're trying to correct that. And they are. But in the Northwest, they have lots of sun and lots of wind and they're generating enormous amounts of power and this is an example. <clears throat> Here's another example of some research being done. This is off Scotland. Um, Scotland has been building these uh, deep sea uh, drilling rigs for the North Sea for decades. And so they have a lot of technology, a lot of experience in how to do this. And so they built these turbines, but they didn't anchor them to the seabed. They're just uh, suspended by cables from the seabed. And because the water here is very deep. And so it's an experimental wind farm, um, and they're using tethered wind turbines. This is the uh, cumulative capacity as of December 16. Look at China, 168,000 megawatts of wind energy. The U.S. is second with about half that amount. Germany is, as indicated, and any other countries there. So you can see China is really just like they were with solar, working really hard to try and increase their amount of renewables. And this is a forecast for the next three years. This was in last year, this forecast through 2020. And the forecast is that China will have about 38% of the capacity. Uh, the EU, the 28 countries at the EU would have about 22%. And the US would be about 16%. So it's not slowing up. Okay, how about electric vehicles? Um, it's kind of interesting that in October last year, Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, uh, made an announcement that they would have 20 new all-electric vehicles by 2023. And that they would have two in the next 18 months. Not to be outdone, Ford the next day said they would also have some, but they didn't say how many models or when. In fairness to Jim Hackett, he had only been on the job for about four months because Ford fired the previous CEO because he was uh, not leading the company to the EVs and driverless cars. But two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, Ford came out with an announcement that they're investing $11 billion in electric vehicles. They plan to have 40 EVs by 2022. 
So it's coming. Uh, Daimler and the uh, other companies in Europe, uh, Volkswagen, are, have similar goals. Volvo, which used to be a Swedish company, now owned by the Chinese, also has similar goals. Now Mary Barrow also, in her statements, came out with this, which is really quite a, a noble goal, that GM wants to have zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. Accidents, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now this, this chart here really is uh, quite a stunner in a sense because OPEC has a vested interest obviously in selling oil and having us consume it. And so they came up with a forecast in 2015 as to how many electric vehicles would be in use by 2040. And so they took the data that was available to them and they said, oh, there'd be about 46 million vehicles. And so they factor that into their production and income forecasts. So this, that's this line here, these lower bar charts. One year later, they made another assessment in 2016 as to how many electric vehicles would be available. It's a quarter of a billion. So in one year, they went from 46 million as an estimate to a quarter of a billion electric vehicles. So they're seeing tremendous changes in this documents that in the marketplace for internal combustion engine versus electric vehicles. Right now in the United States, we have about 51,000 charging stations. SUNY has some now as well. And it's growing rapidly. Uh, this is just three models of EV cars that are available today the Bolt, the Tesla, and the Leaf, with different ranges, different costs, uh, different charging times. But if you want to have a, a good 10 minutes, watch Elon Musk with his new Tesla truck. I'm not into trucks, but it was a very interesting YouTube. Um, it, uh, it will have the typical payload of about 75,000 pounds. It'll have a 500-mile range, and he's targeting this for like uh, Walmart and Amazon, who've already put in orders for these. And it'll be driverless at some point when they perfect that technology, which is not far away. So they would load up at an at a, uh, Amazon distribution center and put all the stuff on, put the truck on a road, no driver. It will go 500 miles to where it needs to go to the next distribution center or wherever the target is. And his uh, trucks look different. And... Um, it, it really is an excellent uh, YouTube video if you get a chance. Now this is uh, an electric bus. And as I mentioned, Beijing knows they have problems with air. So they now have a thousand of these electric buses in Beijing. Now, uh, Natalie pointed out to me the other day, oh, they're like trolleys. They're riding on electric cables above the ground. They're not battery operated. These are electric cables. Um, whether they get the batteries, I don't know what their intent is, but they're going by electric now with this arrangement here. Now that's Beijing. There's a town of 11 million on the southeast coast, and I'm not sure I pronounce it right, Shenzhen, I think is the name of it. They have 10,000 electric buses. They're very serious. Not to be outdone, 
we're going to have about 1,500 UPS trucks in the next couple of years. And, uh, and initially, they're going to be in New York City because of the distances involved and also because of air quality. So they're going to be operating in the metropolitan area. And, um, and it'd be kind of interesting when they start producing them this year. NYSERDA is New York State Energy and Research Development Authority. And they provided this grant to help to develop the drivetrain for an electric truck, delivery truck. So some of this is very compelling. An electric vehicle only has about 800 parts. So the supply chain, getting all those parts together is much simpler for an EV as opposed to 30,000 parts in an internal combustion engine with the pistons and the, and the valves and the rods and all those other things that are in the engine. It's a much simpler <coughs> system. In addition, about 80% of the electrical energy moves the vehicle forward, whereas only about 30% of the gasoline or diesel energy moves that vehicle forward. No oil change either. Um, data is showing that fewer millennials are buying cars. They may rent a car for a weekend or a week, or they will use Uber or Lyft and say, pick me up, I want to go to Manhattan or wherever it is that they want to go. There's also talk about planning in the major cities that they're going to need much less parking spaces because you're not going to drive your car from point A to part point B and park. You're going to call up a service like this, get dropped off, and go about your business, and then call them again to bring you back. Also, the ICEs, the internal combustion engines, cost about $10,000 a year for gas, maintenance, um, insurance, the loan, the cost of the loan, and so forth. So that's an estimate, about $10,000 a year for an ICE. Now, the driverless cars are, uh, I said I would never be in a driverless car. I'm not so sure anymore, because from what I've read, they've come a, f a long way. Now, li LIDAR is just uh, light distance and ranging, and uh, obviously radar and other optical systems. So you have a car with all of these systems built into the car, these, these uh, optical systems built into the car, assessing its environment. And so this is where the computers come in. The computers take all that information that's being sent out and reflected back to its sensors and saying, okay, there's a person with a dog, there's a, a man on a bicycle, there's a kid over here. And so it's integrating all of that information that it's getting live with its environment. And at the car show in San Francisco in the December, there were two reporters that went in a Chevy Bolt. And it was a driverless car, but there was a driver behind the wheel. He wasn't touching the wheel. And it went through the streets of San Francisco and brought them back to the convention center where the conference was. And at the end, it printed out or read out on its, uh, on its screen that they had passed 249 cars, 32 people, and 12 pets or something like that. And uh, it was done completely driverless. So it, it seems to be coming. It's not without problems. I spoke with a, uh, a woman from, uh, I was at a meeting at the Wild Center in December, and her son was employed by uh, MIT last summer. And his job was to take a Chevy Bolt 
and drive it around the eastern United States, a couple of thousand miles. And this bolt was instrumented with cameras focusing on his eyes and on, on the outside world. And it integrated what the cameras were seeing with his eyes and what it was seeing with the outside world with what the sensors were seeing. And trying to make sure that the sensors were interpreting correctly what his, where his eyes were looking and what they were seeing. So it was um, uneventful except he had one event. And that is the sensor down low here saw a pothole in the road and told him about it, but it didn't say how deep. And when he hit the pothole, it blew his tire. So that was the extent of the damage, but it did what they wanted to do, which is to try and find out the warts. What is not working, what needs to be fixed. Storage batteries. So in 2010, it was about $1,000 per kilowatt hour for a storage battery. And in 2016, the estimate was about 227. And in the 20s, in the 2020s, the forecast is that it'll be well under uh, $200 per kilowatt hour. And so with those costs dropping down, obviously then you have some other opportunities like this. This is a sheep farm in New Zealand. And this individual decided that with miles away from the grid, that it was cheaper for him to put in photovoltaic panels and a battery to store the power. And it's scalable. So if this was not big enough, you can put in more solar panels and an additional battery pack. Um, this is a waste water treatment plant. Uh, and during Hurricane Sandy, it became a sewage plant because it lost all power. It did nothing to the water. And so it was a real mess handling all the sewage. This is in Caldwell, New Jersey, just, we uh, just west of New York City. And so they developed a microgrid for the sewage treatment plant. So they have the photovoltaics, they have the battery packs. And so if and when there's another hurricane or a power outage, the sewage treatment plant can continue to function. Elon, this is uh, Southern Australia. Elon Musk um, made a bet, or um, he has these vision things, you know, where he says he can do certain things. And so he promised this particular area in Australia that, oh, I can put in a 100 kilowatt storage area for your, uh, for your uh, electrical system. You've got about 100 uh, uh, megabyte, uh, megawatts of electrical power being generated by all these turbines, and I can have a battery system installed for you to handle your fluctuations that you're having. Because they have some severe uh, thunderstorms, they have some severe windstorms, and the grid is not that stable. So he said, I can build this, and I can do it in 90 days. He did it in 45 days. And as you can see, it's all modular. So once you build one, you can connect it to the others. And so this particular area in Southern Australia now has a, a much more stable electrical supply. And it was at no cost. He donated this as part of his estate, shall we say. But meanwhile, as they say, back at the ranch, 
Earth has a fever. And the fever is getting worse. And as this data shows, in the last uh, 30 some odd years, the fever is really getting much worse and also it's getting uh, the rate of, of temperature increase of the planet is going up. And uh, <clears throat> this shows the last 12,000 years of Earth's history, basically since civilization began, when we start, stopped being hunter-gatherers and we, we began to farm. And we came out of the last ice age and we gained maybe a degree, one degree centigrade, that's it. And we've been pretty stable since then. It's starting to drop a couple of tenths of a degree centigrade now. But here we are today in the industrial era. So we are higher than anything since we began as a civilization. And of course, when we began, we built our cities on the coastlines. Um, we have them all around the globe, whether it's India, Europe, New York City, San Francisco, whatever. And so we have all this infrastructure now that is vulnerable to this increasing temperature and rising sea levels. Um, there is another activity available to us in addition to the converging technologies to try and get things done. And this is the climate march in New York City. This was in September uh, 2014 when the UN was meeting trying to decide what they're gonna do with the climate and what kind of agreement they could come up with. So this is outside the Museum of Natural History. And there were 400,000 people is the estimate in this, uh, I'll call it a parade, it was a demonstration. And everyone had ideas. This one's about fracking, but you name it, and they had a sign for it. And it all involved around, uh, revolved around climate. And Bill McKibben was there, and uh, he's the founder of 350.org. And he's still very active. He publishes in the New York Times, the Rolling Stone magazine, anywhere. He's been uh, very involved in the divestment campaign for pension funds to divest of fossil fuels. Um, and then also, the, there was a march for science last April. As you may know, uh, our current administration is not using science to help it generate policy. And uh, so a lot of scientists and non-scientists got together. And this is coming down Constitution Avenue. And it started at the uh, Washington Memorial and went to the Capitol building. And it was a, a wonderful experience because there were a lot of young folks there. Mm -hmm. They were, they were uh, families with, a, with backpacks with children in them or strollers. Uh, all these signs that were handmade. Um, it was a very interesting event. And here's some people outside the EPA. Respect your mother, the tides are rising, climate change is real. And this is kind of like uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. That bulb was actually lit. Uh, I don't know how many panels he had on his flat hat there, but it was actually lit. So we have a lot of things going on. We have the technology, this convergence of technology that I talked about, activism. We definitely need government policy. And then the personal choices that we all make. So if we combine all of those, I think we have a certain sense of optimism for the future. And nothing is for sure, but we know that things are gonna change and we know there's an energy revolution going on. And this convergence of all of these things together can make a difference. 
So as Kurt Vonnegut says, and so it goes. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>